This is the Trip Doctor Podcast. I'm Evan Jordan. I'm a tourism professor at Arizona State University. I've studied tourism for the last 16 years of my life. If you're interested in learning more about me or the research that I do, head to the Start Here page on GoTripDoctor.com. This podcast is all about traveling intelligently. In each episode, I will interview a tourism researcher about their latest research. Just like medical research or physics research or any other type of research, there's a ton of good tourism research being done every day. The problem is, most of it doesn't make it into popular media. I've created this podcast to translate that information from technical terms to easy to understand language that will help you make informed decisions in your future travels. After the first three episodes of the podcast are released at launch, new episodes are going to be released every other Monday. If you decide you like the podcast, please share it with others who you think might like to be more intelligent travelers. You can also subscribe to the podcast, you can rate it and leave a review. If you want to learn more about being an intelligent traveler yourself, head over to GoTripDoctor.com where you can take my traveler personality quiz, learn more about the impacts of tourism, and see tips and tricks for booking your trips efficiently, inexpensively, intentionally, and intelligently. So you're booking a trip and have decided to use Airbnb to find your accommodation. You put in your destination, your dates, the number of beds and bathrooms you need, and you get back a couple of places that all fit what you're looking for. You're trying to decide which one to pick, but almost all of them have a slew of five-star ratings. How do you know which place is going to be the best? It turns out review comments may reveal more than the five-star rating that each of these properties has. My guest today is Dr. Camilla Vasquez, a professor of applied linguistics at the University of South Florida. She recently published an article in the journal Current Issues of Tourism that asked the question, if nearly all Airbnb reviews are positive, does that make them meaningless? In her analysis of the language people use in their Airbnb reviews, she made some interesting discoveries. Categorically negative reviews, like the place was awful or bad or it sucked, were really, really rare. Like just a handful of those we found out of our sample of 400. Um, most of them were these, you know, super positive ones. But then we found like a segment of, of reviews that looked positive, but kind of made us pause and wonder. And so we called these reviews lukewarm reviews. <laughs> I always think it's useful for people when they're trying to understand somebody's research and the perspective that they're coming from to know a little bit more about you as a traveler yourself. So I have a couple questions I, I'm hoping that you can answer. The first one is, what is your favorite thing about traveling? Yeah, so um, I'm glad that you asked that. I actually, when you sent me your web, uh, your, your link to your website, I took your traveler personality quiz. I was curious to to see what it would what it would tell me. <laughs> that is excellent. So, what did what 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 was your result? Well, I wasn't surprised to discover that I am an explorer. So, the things that really appeal to me about travel are really um, seeing new things, gaining new experiences, meeting new people, um, experience you know, sort of immersing myself in new cultures. Um, and yeah, getting a change of perspective. So I'm, I guess I'm a little bit adventurous and I like to go places that I haven't been before. Um, those are sort of my favorite things about traveling. In terms of places that you've been before, I know you said you go to a lot of new places, but in the past, what's the what's your favorite place that you've ever been so far? Yeah, 
Um, so there are a few places that I've returned to because I love them so much. And um, one of my favorite places in the world, I would say in general, is Southeast Asia. And more specifically there, um, I guess if I had all the money in the world and I could go anywhere and live anywhere and spend time without having to consider practical um, considerations of daily life, that place would be Bali. So um, island in Indonesia. And that's a, a place that's really close to my heart. And I've been a couple of times. Um, and... What I love about it is that it has kind of like the best of all worlds. So I love the the nature and the topography. Um, as an island, there's lots of water, but there's also mountains. It's really lush and green. Um, but besides the nature, there's also a lot of um, rich culture and history and traditions. Um, the arts really thrive on Bali. There's a lot of performing artists, dancers, and musicians who um, are still creating traditional art forms. Um, and it's like, you know, great diving and great snorkeling, but it's also like relatively peaceful and chill, even though there's a lot of tourists on Bali and I guess they have always been, um, and the overall kind of aesthetic and sensibility of, you know, how things are built and, uh, ways that, you know, just the little touch of having like a flower on your plate, even at not a very expensive restaurant, like those are things that really appeal to me. So that's your favorite place you've been. What about the next place that you want to go? Where's like your dream destination? If you had your druthers, where would it be? So I have a lot of places on my list, places that I haven't been to. But actually right now, I'm, I'm, I'll reveal something um, that sheds a little light on how superficial I can be sometimes. So I've been watching a lot of food documentaries about Israel lately. And so they have... I'm a vegetarian and they have beautiful produce. So these luscious tomatoes and all kinds of olive oil that's grown there and beautiful breads. And so I want to go to Israel and eat my way through the country. That's my, my goal for my next trip. Well, that's exciting for me to hear because food, food is my number one reason for travel. That's, that's the first thing I get excited about. (laughs) When I start planning a trip, I'm, I'm automatically going to restaurants and reading restaurant reviews, which is sort of interesting, uh, based on what we're going to be talking about in a second here. Um, that's, that's my number one thing to do is what is the food going to be like and how much of it can I eat while I'm there? It's pretty important, right? So last question, uh, travel related. One of the things that I think makes travel and tourism so awesome is that inevitably in every vacation, there's going to be something that goes wrong. And those are actually some of my favorite stories because in most cases, they end up turning out to be the best story that you can tell when you get home from your vacation. So I'm hoping you can provide us with a short story about a time for you when something went wrong on your trip and you ended up turning it around and it ended up being an awesome story for you to come home with to tell your friends and family. Yeah, um, I'm happy to do that. And I think probably every trip I've taken has at least some element of that, right? Something um, happening that wasn't predicted or that is surprising and not necessarily always in a pleasant way or... um, but exactly like the the sense of adventure or the outcome usually is um, it's not like, Oh, that was devastating. And the whole thing was a loss, but rather, Oh wow, we had this little um, maybe blip, but then everything worked out great. And I like that you ask that in terms of story, because as a sociolinguist, one of my areas of interest is how we as humans story our experiences, like how we construct narratives. And so maybe this is one of the connections for me with, um, with tourism and why, why travel is such an interesting topic. So how do we then tell our stories about what happened? And that's essentially what we're doing when we write reviews. Very often we're not just sort of 
leaving a description and an evaluation, but we're also sort of sequencing a chronological series of events that happened right from the second that we got to the hotel to the minute that we left or whatever. So um, I'll share one story, I guess. Actually, this is a tie in to the to my previous comments about Bali and being a place that I love. So on a recent trip, we were my husband and I were in Hong Kong on business for a while. And since we were close to Bali, it had been maybe 15 years since we had been there the first time. And we said, Okay, let's go back to Bali. And we decided this was maybe five years ago. And we decided that we would only stay in Airbnbs on this particular trip. And so we had gone ahead and made all our bookings um, for five or six different cities around the island. And um, we stayed in a range of different places. So one was like a shared house. One was like a guest um, house where the people didn't live there and they just used it as a vacation rental. Another was we thought a room in a house, but it turned out to be like um, more like a guest house, like a sort of smaller hotel. Um, and so we ended up in, in Ubud, which is kind of in the center of the island. And that's known for a lot of the arts there. And so we had booked a room that we weren't sure whether it was part of a house or not, but it turned out to be part of a hotel. And when we got there, everything looked fine online in the pictures, but the, it was terrible. It was smelled moldy and it was dirty. And so we sort of asked if we could see another room because we didn't want to stay there. They showed us maybe four or five other rooms and where the thing was situated, it was like down a hill and everything was sort of covered in green. And so I think it had just gotten damp and moldy, but the whole place smelled like mold. And we thought, gosh, we really can't stay here. And so we excused ourselves to the management and said, you know, we can't stay here. And they were like, well, give us a second and we'll call our sister property. So they called um, a, another location someplace else, um, maybe like 10 minutes away or something. And they said, we'll just transfer you over to that location and hopefully that will work out. And so we said, okay, that's fine. We weren't, uh, you know, we were totally amenable to being moved. Um, they took us over there on the van. We got into the new place. It was really lovely and clean and fresh and actually turned out to be in a much better location. So things worked out fine. And it was that was actually interesting because it was before um, Airbnb used that system of the simultaneous reveal, which we might talk about in a little bit. But um, so no sooner had we entered that room and sort of logged onto the internet, we saw that the business owners had posted a review of what wonderful guests we were. <laughs> so we had just gotten there, said this is unacceptable. They were gracious enough to transfer us, but I guess in order to, um, I suppose curb any negative review from us about saying anything bad about that first location, they went ahead and said that we were lovely and fantastic. And so of course we didn't, you know, say anything bad about the first thing. We just commented on the on the second location that they moved us to. So that was one of those cases where, you know, it's it didn't seem like it was gonna be a place that we wanted to stay and we ended up not staying there, but we got kind of a better deal out of it. It's like a preemptive praising. Exactly. Exactly. And strategic. And it sort of felt like this might not have been the first time that they had done us. Uh -huh. Maybe a good business practice, I guess, for them. If, right. if that happened quite often, they said, you know, we'll get ahead of this. Exactly. Exactly. One of the things that I think is really interesting about travel research is that you get people of all sorts of backgrounds who do it. And that is something that is, I think, unique to tourism because if I tried to do something like physics research or medical research, I would have no idea what I'm talking about and I would probably end up doing research that isn't useful to anybody. Uh, but you, as a, as a linguist, have done some really interesting travel research. So tell me how you got into, as a linguist, doing tourism research. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, it was pretty accidental. 
So as my background is in studying really close analyses of conversation, of talk and spoken interaction. And so suddenly, I think maybe it was around 2007, 2008, I was using TripAdvisor myself as a, just as a consumer, as a traveler. And so before I would travel somewhere, I would look up hotel info. And at that time, TripAdvisor wasn't really new. I think it was founded in like 2000 or something like that. So it had been around for a few years, but it wasn't quite as popular as it is today. Like it wasn't the number one search results when you would search for a hotel, for example. And a lot of people that I was interacting with at that time still hadn't heard of TripAdvisor. So it was like, I, was, I would say it was mainstream, but it wasn't super popular. And at that point in time, on its homepage, TripAdvisor had this featured section called Rants and Raves where they showcased this rotating set of reviews. And so the raves obviously were really positive reviews and the rants were one-star reviews of hotel experiences gone terribly wrong, like the worst things you could possibly imagine happening. And so somehow I got sucked into this. I don't know what it says about me and, you know, this keen interest in negative stories, but um, I just found these things really interesting, especially how people were using language to construct negative evaluation. And so I thought, hmm, I wonder if any linguists had sort of identified any of these features or had started looking at reviews as a genre in general. And what I found was no. I mean, there were a handful of studies by language researchers looking at um, like Amazon reviews, maybe products reviews, but nobody had really gotten into the tourism space as far as reviews were concerned and from a linguistic perspective. And so that kind of led me to collect some data. So I started looking at these rants, these terrible, terrible um, hotel experiences on TripAdvisor. And I was looking at things like how do people uh, use language to formulate complaints? Do they feel like they have to qualify those complaints or mitigate them in any way? Do they use figurative language or metaphor? Um, do they include any kind of appeals to their own ethos and credibility as authors, like why we should care about their opinions, things like that. And so that kind of really um, is, was my first foray into looking at review language. And from there, I've looked at reviews on a number of other sites, but I really started looking at TripAdvisor reviews. And then I, you know, from there, I've looked at restaurant reviews. As you mentioned in my book, I look at reviews, five different review types from different kinds of websites, some about travel, but not all. Um, and then that ultimately led me to this Airbnb study that you mentioned. And um, I was interested in reviews on Airbnb because of their reciprocal nature. When you're doing this type of research, is there something that you're hoping to accomplish? Is it just this was a curiosity of yours and you, you wanted to know about them? Or is it you think that there's something specific that we can learn in this body of research that is going to be useful to people in their everyday lives? Yeah, so I think that um, usually every study kind of comes with some kind of a question, and that question's derived from something I've observed about practices, um, you know, user practices, like because these forms of online communication are also relatively recent. So we've been, you know, writing books for a long time, and we've been having face to face conversations for a long time, but we haven't necessarily been communicating to, you know, thousands of strangers and sharing our opinions that's something that's pretty new. And so I, I'm interested in, I guess, what are some of the ways in which we do that? How do we connect with people who we don't actually know who they are? We don't know who's going to read our reviews when we write them. So this thing about, you know, negotiating social um, interaction in a forum where you don't really know your audience and your audience doesn't really know you in an offline sense, which is different from like communicating on Facebook, for example, right? Where you um, have a number of contacts, you're communicating online. You may not necessarily know who all is going to see what you post, but you have some sense of 
the range of people who might likely see what you're writing, right? So it's, it's you know, my, my questions really have a lot to do with understanding, I guess, the nature of human connection and communication and how that happens in online environments. And travel is really interesting place to look at that stuff. So um, I guess it's also like an interesting form of business communication, which I didn't really, when I first got into it, I wasn't conceptualizing it that way. But then other scholars have sort of said, yeah, this is an interesting form of business discourse, like people talking about um, consumer levels of satisfaction before you would fill out like a questionnaire, or if you were upset, you would talk to the manager, right? So these are very constrained um, one-to-one kinds of communication where now with these reviews, it's like one-to-many and the impacts on businesses are also quite different than, um, you know, satisfaction surveys had an impact on before. So it's more public, it's more visible, it's kind of changing the dynamics a little bit. So those are... That's what drives me. And then each kind of study, you know, usually has some other specific focus. Like you mentioned, um, I think the study that I did with a colleague from Hong Kong about Michelin rated reviews. And so we were kind of interested in, hey, are reviewers on Yelp um, evaluating food differently than reviewers on open rice who are located in Asia? So do they use the same kinds of um, language? Are they specific about the kind of food that they describe and stuff like that? So those kinds of questions really came more with a comparative focus. So it kind of depends on the site and the study. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you mention uh, business and how business has been involved in the review process, because now we're seeing cases where if a business doesn't respond to a complaint or a negative review almost within, I don't know, I want to say an hour, then they end up getting a lot of negative press. And so it's sort of fascinating how that has changed uh, the way that people communicate online to companies if they've had a bad experience. It's changed the way that they communicate about their experiences to other travelers. And it's also interesting, I think, that you mentioned sort of the anonymity of it because Uh we see in places like the comments on news articles or YouTube videos or whatever it may be, there's people saying a lot of negative things on there or things that they wouldn't normally say in their everyday lives because it tends to be a little bit more anonymous than, like you said, your social media interactions where everybody knows it's you and, you know, these are people you may know in in other facets of your life. So you mentioned that you got into studying online reviews and TripAdvisor out of a personal interest in using those sites. But yeah. why this particular this particular study of Airbnb? And, and you mentioned simultaneous reviews, and I think that's kind of a big issue in what you found in the research. So tell me about the story of the research. How did you get into it? How did it happen? Yeah, so um, at that point, I had done a couple, I published a couple of different papers about language of TripAdvisor reviews, and I think I had maybe even written the book. And so I was curious, like the... Um, sharing economy seemed like the next logical step. So I was thinking about, okay, I'd really like to look at Airbnb reviews um, and think about what's interesting about Airbnb reviews. And immediately what's interesting about them is, is the nature of this reciprocal review process, right? So that you have the guests reviewing the property and the host. So the consumer side of experience, which is typical, and that happens on all review sites. But on Airbnb, you have this other element, which is the hosts reviewing the guests. And that's unusual. So you have a two-way review process. And something about that struck me as, oh, that might be worth looking at since it's a dimension that's absent from other kinds of reviewing sites. And so, um, and it makes sense to have that bi-directional reviewing process, by the way, when you have this kind of sharing situation, right? And you're inviting strangers into your home. 
um, and they're staying there, right? And those people then go on to stay in other people's homes, right? So you kind of want to, the reputation is not just of the business side, but also on the, on the customer side. Yeah, that way you can avoid getting people that trash your house, as we've seen stories in the news. Exactly. It makes perfect sense. And so because you have the businesses and their profiles that kind of stay, remain um, on, on the website, you also have information about the users that remain there, too. So you're linked to your profile and all the reviews that have been written about you. Um, and so I got into this with one of my PhD students, Judith Bridges, um, who was kind of also interested in this topic. And so we decided to create a sample of reviews, looking both at guest reviews and host reviews. And I think our initial questions going into it maybe had to do with how similar or different are the concerns expressed in, you know, from the guest side versus the host side. And we decided to um, collect the reviews that had only been written about renting an entire property. So none of this like a room in somebody's house because we wanted it to be sort of the closest thing to what staying in a hotel was like, let's say, um, more of an anonymous experience. Well, we were really surprised to find that like in 90% of the guest reviews, even in situations where they hadn't physically met the host and all their communication had been online, 90% of the reviews mentioned the host by name. So, or said something about the host being, you know, easy to communicate with. So that person to person connection that, that is definitely part of the Airbnb experience was really important and figured prominently in the review language. So that was one of the things that we found. Well, that's really interesting because I feel like that is promoted very strongly in the Airbnb website because immediately when you go onto a property's page, you have about the host and it tells their story and it gives you their name. Do you think that influences the way people write their reviews in that way? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that there's, you know, it was incredible to us that even in situations, you know, in a number most of the situations, I think there hadn't been face-to-face -face contact because it wasn't a shared space. So, but somehow the fact that there's a person attached to the property makes it less anonymous, makes the experience less anonymous, right? And so there's, there's, and I know even in Airbnbs that I've stayed at, I've had maybe multiple text message exchanges with the host, you know, maybe them reminding me of something or me asking them for a favor. And so you kind of feel like you get to know them a little bit, even though you've never even physically met face to face. Yeah, so it's a little bit more than just going online and making a reservation. You get that that personal connection. Um, yeah. So you also mentioned in, in the study, I know you said 90% of people mention their host or guest by name. You also mentioned that the vast majority of reviews are positive. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? <laughs> yeah, I'll be happy to talk about that. So um, after studying reviews and thinking about reviews and ratings for like 10 years now, um, there's actually research from several disciplines, I think, starting with economics and maybe going to marketing. But there, it's been kind of demonstrated over and over that most review sites and rating sites have what's called a J-shaped distribution. So the most, the highest number of stars are on the positive end. Um, it kind of drops off in the middle in the two and three star range. And then it gets a little bit higher at the negative end. So, you know, you have the the top of the J is at the five star end and then the bottom part of the J is at the one star end. 
And so it kind of makes sense because you're going to be more likely probably to spend some time writing a review if you had a really great experience or a really horrible experience. And if you have just kind of a mediocre experience, then you might think, why bother? And I really don't have that much to say, which is kind of okay. Um, and so that's a trend that is, you know, it patterns the same way, regardless of what kind of product you're talking about and what kind of review site. So J-shaped distribution applies to TripAdvisor as it does to Amazon and as it does to Airbnb. But uh, the thing that happens with Airbnb is that the positive uh, bias is even stronger. So that means that the star ratings on, you know, if I think the something like the average star rating for a hotel on TripAdvisor is maybe 3.7 or something like that, 3.8. But on um, Airbnb, it's 4.7 out of five stars, right? So you have this, basically, it's analogous to great inflation. You've got lots and lots of positive, positive reviews on Airbnb, even more so than you do on the other sites where there's a tendency to have more positive than negative reviews. And that's that's likely not reflective of the experience that people actually have, right? There's no way that almost everybody is having a five-star positive review. Is that correct? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, that's that's our guess. And that's kind of what why we thought, well, you know, the ratings themselves don't really tell you that much information, right? So if you've, you stay at a property that's 4.7 stars versus one that's 4.8 stars, I mean, how much, what's the differential in terms of, you know, positivity of experience there? That It's really hard to put your finger on that. And so I think that that's why we find those narrative reviews kind of interesting and useful because you can call out even more information and get more detail from that. And so that was one of the things that Judith and I then focused on was saying, okay, well, all these people are having great experiences, but are there any differences in how great they are, right? So can we, does the language that people use give us some clues about, you know, um, maybe this experience, even though it seems on the surface to be positive, isn't quite as positive as the other one. But you're, you're right. I mean, the norm is, on Airbnb is like unequivocally positive reviews. And like most of the language is like great, amazing, wonderful, fantastic, right? These kind of superlatives and, and super positive adjectives of evaluation are really, really frequent. So if I'm a person, let's say I'm planning a vacation and I'm looking, th- I've decided I want to stay in an Airbnb. I'm looking through different properties and I got a few picked out that I think are good. What are the, what are the words or the ways that people uh, are leaving reviews, the things that they're saying in their reviews? What are the things that people can look for to indicate that there might be a little bit more variation rather than just having everybody giving five-star reviews? What tells us the truth? Yeah. So what we found was that like, like categorically negative reviews, like the place was awful or bad or it sucked, were really, really rare. Like just a handful of those we found out of our sample of 400. Um, most of them were these, you know, super positive ones. But then we found like a segment of, of reviews that looked positive but kind of made us pause and wonder. And so we called these reviews lukewarm reviews. (laughs) And so on the surface, they look good because there aren't any words necessarily that like a sentiment analysis software program would pick out as, oh, negative evaluation. But they have words like, uh, you need to read a little bit between the lines. So there's nothing negative necessarily, but you see words like, okay, the place was okay, or this was good, or it was an okay stay in an interesting neighborhood, right? So you see that there's a difference between, you know, amazing experience and okay stay. So on the surface of it, nothing is wrong with okay, but okay actually in the world, in the review scape, um, kind of tells you not okay usually. And the same thing with good. Good means barely average in, in review language. You have to sort of bump everything up a couple other levels because, you know, we tend to 
be hyperbolic and superlative in our in our positive evaluation online. Um, so you kind of yeah, if you see anything like decent, okay, good, interesting, stay away. Um, and the other thing to think about is um, maybe looking at other reviews written by that particular reviewer. So if you see a review like that, one of those lukewarm reviews that isn't sort of effusively positive, you might say, hmm, has this person written other reviews about other places? Look at their other reviews. And if those reviews are, you know, the typical over the top, yay, everything was fantastic and outstanding and amazing. And then this one review is saying it was okay. Aha, uh -huh. so you know that maybe this is the person's way of saying this place was really not very good at all, but I don't want to go on record as saying that so directly. Oh, that's fascinating. So it might be that you can learn about somebody's reviews by reading their other reviews because that tells you, you know, what kind of maybe they're just everything stinks or maybe everything is good except this one thing. That's right. And so I think that's one of the advantages of having, from a user perspective, of having these consolidated profiles that aggregate the information that you have written, right? So then that gives other users, it's, it's transparent. So, you know, you and I can then go and look and say exactly this thing. So is this one of these people who seems to be unhappy about everything, right? And is always negative about their experiences, or they're really, really positive across the board, except this one time something didn't quite seem to go well. So is this something that translates well i know you said the average star review on like TripAdvisor is not quite so high as it is on something like airbnb where you have reciprocal yeah. reviews so is this applicable to everything else like yelp and TripAdvisor and amazon reviews etc cetera, etc cetera, or is it only apply a little bit to those things as well yeah yeah actually that's what i found too so there's um you know i think that what we're seeing now is this um <laughs> semantic downgrading of words of evaluation so before um good you know seemed to be fine seemed to be good enough um and if you but if you think about it if somebody asks you if you went to a concert last night how was the concert and, and if your reply is the concert was good you know it sort of falls flat and it doesn't seem like you really liked it right and i think that because like where we've come as consumers and with advertising and marketing, I think we have, you know, we've been, we've created these expectations of, um, you know, you're expecting an amazing experience. Right? You're something is, you should just be blown away. So, yeah. So I remember looking at, um, when I was writing my book, looking at food reviews, restaurant reviews on Yelp. And so it was the same thing. Like the sushi was good, but it wasn't dance a jig, fall on the floor good, right? Or it wasn't mind blowing. Good. So there were a lot of these qualified goods. And so most of the time when you see something like that, you know that it, it's not so great. Is this a result of social media? I know you mentioned the general media because of advertising and we're seeing all these words that are very strong uh, in one direction or another. Is that something that social media is influencing as well because people want everyone else to think they're having a fantastic time rather than just a good time? <laughs> definitely, definitely contributing to it, right? And I think that it, and we're seeing more kind of um, flows back and forth between traditional um, mass media and social media. You know, it's kind of all of that information is, is flowing in, in reciprocal directions. So yeah, definitely, definitely that has a factor. I just want to finish by asking you if if I have a person who's booking a vacation and they're looking at, that, at online reviews, what's the number one thing that you would say you would look for as somebody who, who understands this process in, in a very intricate level of detail? What's the number one thing you would look for in reviews that say, stay away from this place, even though it's got a five-star review? 
Yeah, actually, one of those things now, too, where like I when I'm booking something, even though the average rating is pretty high, I'll look at the one star reviews and see if there are any patterns that appear in those negative reviews. So is it a, are those structural issues or are those service issues? Are What about the dates? How recently were those reviews posted? If they're from six months ago, then maybe the management's taking care of those problems that they haven't been mentioned recently. Um, so it's kind of like getting to know the review sites and really familiarizing yourself with the tools that are there. Um, I think also figuring out like what signals to you, and that's individual for all of us as a traveler, um, messages that you can relate to, right? So I think very often we do this as we're kind of processing review texts um, heuristically. We're not very systematic about it. We're not always looking for one thing, but you know, if you are a person who is a light sleeper and you need to, you know, make sure that you get a good night's sleep, maybe making sure that there's no mention of noise outside, right? And then also seeing what other cues are there in the review um, to tell you, is this somebody who's believable? Like, do they seem like they're a similar traveler to me? Because I think that's also kind of what what we're doing when we're when we're reading these things, because we don't take, I think we don't take the word of everybody um, we don't give it all the same weight. For instance, if someone's saying I'm a first time traveler, I've never left my country. Um, and I didn't like this hotel room because it's too small. You might tell yourself, well, okay, you know, you don't, you may not be the most experienced person and, and maybe I'm going to, you know, skip, skip on to the next review to see if there's somebody whose experiences are more like my own. So, so dig a little bit deeper and know your reviewer and know yourself. Yeah, excellent. That's exactly <laughs> beautiful summary. Perfect. Well, uh, once again, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. I think this is some fascinating uh, information that will hopefully go a long ways towards helping people travel a little bit more intelligently, which is ultimately what the Trip Doctor is all about, is getting people to be a little bit more intelligent in their travels um, and in their decision making. So once again, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Evan. If you want to learn more about Dr. Vasquez and her work, you can visit her website at camillavasquez.com or her blog at researchingdigitalmedia.com. You'll be able to find both of those links on the website if you're interested in learning more.